Well, hello again, and uh, my name is Matt Howell. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer, and I especially want to welcome you, and uh, thank you for joining us. If you, if you are um, tuning in from a place of being spiritually bored or spiritually burnt, burnt out, we're super thankful that you're with us. If, if you find yourself uh, confused by the church, not really sure why you're watching this, or if you're excited by the church, you hate the fact that you have to watch this, you wish you were here with us in person, wherever you find yourself this morning, uh, we're so glad that you would choose to spend your morning, or I guess your afternoon, whatever time of day you're tuning in, um, hanging out with us here at Redeemer. Well, if you're new to Redeemer, you might be wondering, what is Redeemer? Well, uh, we're a church. And what that means is we're a community of people, and we're trying to learn how to love God and to love our neighbor. And the way that we do that is we get together each week to worship God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so that we might collectively rest in His great love for us. And then we get together throughout the week in community groups and individually over tea and coffee and milkshakes so that we might remind one another of His great love for us. And as we rest and as we remind, we delight to spread throughout Midtown in service so that we might reflect His love for us, because we dream of seeing our city flourish. And so that's who we are. We're a community of people, and, and we are trying to learn how to love God. We're trying to learn how to love our neighbor as we rest and as we remind and as we reflect. And in order to help us do that this summer, what we're doing is we're looking at the parables that Jesus told. Parables, we've been saying these are these, it's a teaching device, it's analogies, it's stories that Jesus told that were intentionally designed to frustrate you, to disrupt your, your, your thinking. And in fact, the, the parable that was just read is one of the most disturbing parables that Jesus told. In fact, a number of years ago, I was talking to my wife about this parable, and she goes, I hate that parable. I hate it. And I think that's because this parable, is, it's, it's about grace. And grace, you could basically define as undeserved favor. It's, it's somebody getting something good that they don't deserve to get in the first place. And I think deep down, all of us hate grace. We have a, we have a knee-jerk reaction to it. We don't like it, myself included. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, what are you talking about, Matt? You, you've been here for basically two months, and that's all you've been talking about is grace. And, uh, and what do you mean I don't like grace? I love grace. This is why I, I like church and Christian-y things. Is I'm, I'm a big grace fan. I sing Amazing Grace. I'm into it. Okay, well, before you, you know, challenge that statement too severely, I want you to think about this for a second. Zoom out for a minute and just think about our culture as a, as a whole for a, for a moment. There is a reality now called cancel culture. If you're unfamiliar with this terminology, it's basically when um, people collectively boycott public figures that have messed up in a very flagrant way. It's when, it's when, it's when we collectively say, if you have really screwed up, if you have really done something wrong, you, we have deemed your career over. There is no forgiveness. There's only punishment. And I think the reason why that, ex that, that instinct exists out there in the world, in the culture, is because that instinct exists in here. Human beings have a, have a natural revulsion to grace. 
Another example, um, some of you might know the name Sarah Silverman. She's a famous comedian. She has this clip on YouTube uh, called Religion is Crazy. I'm just going to just deliver some of what she said in that stand-up uh, little clip. I'm going to edit it for the sake of the children out there. But here's what she said, quote, Christianity is super old, but it's crazy. You're born a sinner. By being born, you're a sinner and you're going to hell. But you can just apologize and you go to heaven. No big deal. If you're a murderer, same thing. It's just apologize and go to heaven. You can be Hitler and go to confession and say, Father, forgive me, I've killed six million Jews. And the priest would be like, no problem, just say ten Heil Marys and Hitler goes to heaven. Hitler goes to heaven. She's got some, you know, little jokes in there, but you see her point. She's saying, she, she's just articulating our, our revulsion to grace. If you're a murderer, if you're Hitler, you just get grace and you, and, and you can just be pardoned just like that. It, it, that feels wrong. Grace feels wrong. If you've really messed up, if you've really done something wrong, you deserve to be canceled. You deserve to be punished. You deserve to be done with. And it is into this universal hatred of grace that Jesus tells this disturbing story. So let's just walk through the story real quick, and then I'll make a couple of observations about it. But let's just walk through the story. The story begins by, um, by Jesus telling us that there's this wealthy man who owns a large estate of land, and he goes out into the village early one day to go hire some uh, laborers. The way that it worked back then, and I guess in many ways that it, it still works this way today is that um, poor unemployed men would go to the marketplace and they would gather together and they would wait to be hired for a, a day job, for, for some kind of manual labor job. Now, just imagine what it feels like to go out there and just wait. I mean, first of all, it's, 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 you know, it's got to be somewhat humiliating to just sit there unable to really do anything. You're just completely at the mercy of whoever's going to hire you that particular day. And it's, you know, it's got to be terrifying to think, like, if nobody hires me this day, I'm going to go back home, and I'm not, I will have provided nothing for my family. I won't be able to feed my family. I'm just, I'm sitting here just hoping somebody's going to hire me. Now, back then, uh, the, the way that the day was broken down is the, the work day went from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., 12 hours in the day, 6 to 6. And on this particular occasion, this... Um, uh, landowner goes into the marketplace and he hires this crew at 6 a.m. to go do to go do a job and he, he says I'm going to pay you a denarius. Now a denarius was basically like a typical wage for one day of work. So to make things easy for you and me, let's just say 12 hours in a day, $10 an hour. He's he's going to give him 120 bucks. So here are these guys that get hired at 6 a.m. and they're just skipping through the fields when they get there. Sweet, we got a job, we're going to work all day, get 120 bucks. That's a big win for us. So, story goes on, verse 3. At 9 a.m., the owner goes back to the marketplace, and people are still standing around without a job, and so he hires them, brings them on, brings them down to his land to go work. He goes back out again, third time, at noon, gets another crew, brings them out to his field. And he does it again, at 3 p.m., hires another crew. At 5 p.m., when there's only one hour left before quitting time, he goes back to the marketplace, and I love this, in verse 6 and 7, he asks 
the obvious question, why are y'all standing here? And they're like, because no one's hired us, you dummy. And so he says, okay, come on, I'm going to hire you for one hour of work. And you got to think, when they get to the property, it's 5 p.m., Maybe they, they, they run into somebody that's been working there since 6 a.m., and they, they've been told, okay, they're getting paid 120 bucks. They do some quick math. They realize, okay, we're working one hour. We're going to get 10 bucks. It's nothing. It's not a lot. It's something. It's not nothing. It's, it's you know, whatever. We're getting something. It's better than nothing. So at 6 p.m., the, the workday is over. All the workers gather together. It's time to pay them. And the owner calls his foreman over in verse 8. And he says, hey, I got an idea. You know that crew that we just hired that only worked one hour? Even though we hired them last, I want you to pay them first. So they step up and they get, verse 9, 120 bucks, a full day's wage for one hour of work. Their eyes you know, pop out of their head, their jaw hits the floor, they just want to hug and kiss the landowner. Oh my goodness, what in the world? We never in a thousand years would have seen this coming. Now you got to think, the people that have been there from 6 a.m. see this transaction happening and they think, oh my goodness, if they get $120 for one hour of work, we can only imagine what we're going to get. We thought we were only going to get 120 bucks oh my word, we're, we're, good. we're rich. This is crazy. We're rich. And down the line, he starts paying the people that work, that were hired at three, the people that were hired at noon, the people that were hired at nine. He pays them all 120 bucks, each person, each crew, until he gets down to the very people that were hired at 6 a.m., pays them 120 bucks, and they receive it, and they are livid. Look at what they do in verse 12. They start chewing out the owner. They're like, what kind of sick joke is this? This is totally unfair. This is unjust. We've been working all day long. The, the heat of the sun has just been beating down on us for 12 straight hours. And here are these people that have worked one hour. They've barely even broken a sweat. You've given them the same amount of money that you've given us? What kind of a crazy, sick monster are you? And look at what the owner's response is in verse 13. He looks at him and goes, he basically says, okay, wait a second. Have I cheated you in any way? I agreed to pay you $120. And look, oh, what is that in your hand? $120. Do you not think I have a right to do with my money with whatever I want to do? What is it to you that, it, that you know, are you really going to be mad at me for being recklessly generous with these other people? And right when you're just waiting to hear how are they going to respond, how is this going to resolve, what's going to happen, are they going to break out in a fist fight, what's going to happen? Jesus just ends the story. It just ends right there, and Jesus repeats the phrase that he actually said before he even told the story in the chapter before. He just says this, the last will be first, and the first will be last. Now, this is a story about God's irritating, offensive grace. Flannery O'Connor, who's a great Southern author, uh, she once said, grace must wound before it can heal. Grace must wound. That's the order. If grace has not bothered you, annoyed you, frustrated you, made you angry, then you have not wrapped your head around the concept of grace yet. But if 
you are willing to let it wound you, for it, for it to scandalize you, for it to offend you, only then are you in a position where it can heal you. But how does it do that? How does it wound you? How does it heal you? Well, those are the kind of two questions I want to frame the rest of our time around. How does grace wound you and how does grace heal you? Let's just look at those one at a time. How does grace wound us? Well, I think it wounds us in two ways. You at least see at least two ways from this passage. The first way that grace wounds us is that it offends our pride. It offends our pride. Here's a question. Why did the vineyard owner keep going back and forth and back and forth to go get people from the marketplace? Why did he hire all these different crews? Well, you may have the idea, well, maybe it was because he miscalculated how many people he actually needed. It was a bigger job than he thought, and he went out there, and he hired a crew, and then he get back, and he realizes, oh, I need more people. Now, that explanation makes sense maybe for him to do that once, <laughs> but he goes back and forth five times. He's either horribly bad at, at calculating what his needs are, or there's something else going on here. I, and I think there's something else going on here. The only reason that really makes sense why he would keep going back and forth and back and forth is because he has compassion on these unemployed workers. They're just, they're just waiting out there. They're hungry. They're discouraged. Every hour that passes, they're feeling the weight of, I'm going to have to go home at the end of the day and tell my family I'm bringing home nothing to provide for them. So I think here's what we learn. He hires them for their benefit, not for his. He's hiring them not because he needs them, but because they need him. Here's what we see. He's hiring them um, because not for what they can do for him, but for what he can do for them. I heard this story by um, Ray Cortez, who's a pastor in, in Florida. He actually helped me think through a lot of uh, this passage and this text. And uh, he told a story a number of years ago about a, a man named Matt LaChapa, who uh, just had signed a contract with the San Diego Padres. And in fact, um, for 20 years now, he is, he's, every year he has signed a contract with the Padres. And what's fascinating is that he doesn't play baseball. In fact, he's in a wheelchair. Here's a baseball team that has hired somebody that doesn't play, that doesn't work, that actually contributes nothing to the team. And the reason why is when Matt LaChapa was 19 years old, he was, he was playing for the Padres and he had a heart attack that rendered him, uh, that kind of forced him in, in, into a wheelchair for the rest of his life. And the organization wanted him to have health insurance, and so every year they give him this contract to sign, and he doesn't do anything. He doesn't, he doesn't contribute to the team, but the owner takes care of him. And Jesus, I think, is telling this story to say that's what it's like to be a part of the kingdom of God. You might have the delusions that you're contributing something, but at the end of the day, you are 100% a charity case. He doesn't need us. We're the ones that need him. He recruits us for our sake, not for his sake. And we hate that because it offends our pride. We, we, who want, we don't want to think of ourselves as a charity case. We, we want to think of ourselves as good people getting what good people like us deserve. This Christmas, if I were to give you a gift, let's say I give you a gift and uh, it's, this, it's this wrapped 
present, and I hand it to you, and you unwrap the present, and you see what it is underneath, and it's a bottle of mouthwash. If you say thank you and you accept that gift, you are inadvertently admitting something about yourself. You are admitting you have bad breath and you needed it to begin with. For you to say thank you, for you to receive grace, is for you to admit something about yourself. There are certain gifts that you cannot receive and not also experience the, the insult that comes with it. If you receive grace, you are admitting, I needed grace. If you're going to identify yourself as a Christian, someone whom Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you are admitting to the watching world, I needed saving. You're publicly saying, I deserve to be canceled, not by the public, you know, the court of public opinion, but by God himself. Grace comes in like a wrecking ball, and it, dis it destroys our pride. There's no room for pride anymore. You see how it wounds you? If you're going to receive grace, you have to first admit that you needed it, and that is deeply offensive to our pride. Grace offends our pride, but also, secondly, the other way it wounds us is it confronts our entitlement. Go back to the parable for a second. When the people that had worked all 12 hours, when they go up to the landowner and they start complaining, look at what they say in verse 12. It's very fascinating. They say, you have made them equal to us. You made those people over there equal to us. They worked one hour. We worked 12. And what they're saying is, <laughs> the reason why they're losing their minds on this landowner is because they're saying, we deserve more. We earned more. We're entitled to more. What's fascinating to me is how aware of the disparity they are. They are keenly aware those people only worked one hour and we worked all 12. And what they're doing is they're, just, they're showing you this is just how the posture of entitlement works. The default setting of the natural human heart is to always be keeping score always comparing, always analyzing, always sizing people up. Where are you? Where am I? I mean, this is why, if we're honest, this is why some of you right now know how many times your spouse has done the dishes versus how many times you have, keeping score in your head. I mean, this is why some of you know right now how much money people owe you out there or how many times your coworker has done that thing that just drives you crazy Keeping score, we're just tallying it all up. You know, we also do this in a, kind of an inverted way with our own suffering, the ways that we, we feel about ourselves as victims, especially if you've gone through, if you've really gone through the ring or if you've really gone through something hard, there, there's, my guess is there's part of you that, that feels like I, because I have gone through something way harder than everyone else, I deserve more empathy, more special attention, more special treatment. We even do this with our suffering. I deserve more. So my point is, here's the thing, is we're always keeping score. We're calculating. We're comparing. And, and we're using these calculations as a basis for believing about ourselves, I deserve more than this, or I don't deserve this. I've earned it. I deserve more. And grace comes in like a wrecking ball, and it just obliterates our entitlement because grace has nothing to do 
with what you deserve or don't deserve. That's why it's called grace. And that's why we hate it, because it levels the playing field, and it renders all of your hard work and all of your effort obsolete. We think, what kind of a God would take somebody that only worked one hour and they get awarded employee of the year when we are the ones that have been busting our hump working 12 straight hours in the heat? But grace comes in and it confronts our entitlement. You see how grace wounds us? It, it, it confronts our pride. It confronts our entitlement. It, it, if, if you will let it strip you and break you and humble you, it is only then that you are in a position where actually grace can then come in and heal you. Grace afflicts the comfortable, but it also comforts the afflicted. Now, how does that work? How does grace heal us? This is the second kind of big idea I want to look at, and then we're done. Here's how it works. Go back to those workers that worked, the workers that worked. That's a fun sentence. Go back to the workers that worked one hour. Why, what do you think went through their heads when they received $120 for doing one hour of work? They were blown away by the generosity and the kindness of the landowner why, though? Because they, they, they had zero expectation that they deserved anything more. They had spent 11 straight hours on the side of the road twiddling their thumbs, and then they were brought in at the last minute and were basically contributing nothing. They never in a million years saw this coming. When you begin to realize that your pride is delusional and your entitlement is misguided, and that at the end of the day, you really are a charity case. Only then does grace become the best news that you've ever heard. Grace is the best news in the world when you know that you are the least deserving. Consequently, grace is the, is the worst news in the world when you think you are deserving. But, but grace is being treated like you worked 12 hours when you basically did nothing. That's what grace is. It, it, it's you getting everything when you earned nothing. So how do you get to a place where you can be blown away by the grace of God? Well, first, it's, it's having your pride and your entitlement deconstructed and obliterated. But, but you also, you have to look at the landowner again. You've got to look at the landowner. The crazy thing about this whole story is this little detail in verse 8. In verse 8, you learn that the landowner has a foreman. Now, a foreman was somebody that basically oversaw the entire operation of, of, the, of the job. He was the one. The foreman was the one that should have been going out, waking up at 5 in the morning, going and finding workers out in the marketplace, going back and forth, back and forth, finding, recru you know, recruiting and bringing in people. The landowner never should have been involved at that level of the operations going and hiring and hiring workers by 9 a.m. the landowner should have been in a hammock with a mimosa i mean he should have been you know calling shots like a boss from the air conditioning what in the world is this landowner doing he wanted to be involved he, he, was, he was involving himself in the process in fact if you think about it the 12 hour workers they were complaining 
we've borne the heat of the day all day long. Okay, but it's kind of because they had to. They had no other choice. It was either work or starve to death. But here is this wealthy landowner, and he also is bearing the heat of the day out going back and forth and back and forth and gathering people that needed help as the sun is beating down on him, not because he had to, but because he had compassion in his heart for the people that couldn't take care of themselves. And then he brings them in and he gives away his riches to people that don't really deserve it. He takes his riches and gives it away to people that can't feed, them, feed their own families. What is Jesus doing? He's giving you a picture, a story of, his, of him. I mean, Jesus is the landowner. I mean, think about it. He could have stayed in heaven with his father, but he leaves and he comes in person out of compassion for people that can't take care of themselves. And then out of the, out of the overflow of his own heart, he makes himself poor so that we who are poor might become rich. And he, he lives a life of such beauty of such love. He was the only person in the history of humanity where God could have looked at him and and said, you earned my favor. You're entitled to my blessing and my favor. And even though he earned it, even though he was entitled to it, what did he say on the cross? He said, Father, forgive them. Give them what I deserve. And on the cross, Jesus is canceled. He is permanently marked with the shame that you and I deserve. And he, he doesn't just bear the, the heat of the day. He bears the penalty for our pride and our entitlement so that we could get the blessing and the honor that he deserves. This is always what God has done. God takes the worst sinners in the world, murderers like Cain and Moses, sexual predators like David, oppressors like Abraham, racists like Jonah, and even scorekeeping, performance-oriented approval addicts like me and like you. And he takes us and he gives us a, a seat of honor in heaven only because Jesus was, was willing to be canceled in our place. That's grace. Now, I'll end with this. Final thought. Uh, in 2015, there was uh, at the World Rugby Championship, New Zealand played Australia, and New Zealand won, consequently. After the game was over, after the match was over, they're, they're in this big, uh, I guess, arena, football place, stadium, and all the, all the New Zealand players are out on the field, and the fans are, you know, the stands are packed with fans, and there's this one person that jumps over the stands and begins running onto the field, and of course, there's all these security guards out there, and there's this one security guard that sees this person running, and he just full body tackles this person to the ground, just bam, you can find this on, online, it's, it's, I mean, it's amazing, but when he gets up, you realize that the person he tackled was this 14-year-old kid, like this fanboy that was just running on the field because he was so excited about his favorite New Zealand rugby player, Sonny Bill Williams, and the security guard <laughs> just takes him out. Which, you know, t- to be fair, he, this kid was breaking the law. You're not supposed to run onto the field, and so the, the security guard was doing his job. But Sonny Bill Williams comes over to this kid and he picks him up and he hugs him and, you know, they're taking pictures with this kid and after a few minutes he takes this kid and he, and he walks him over to the stands to return him to his parents. 
Now, after they won the game, you should realize all of the New Zealand rugby players had been given this, this gold medal. This was like their trophy. All the players had this gold medal. And right before Sonny Bill Williams returns this kid to his family, he takes off his medal and puts it on the kid's neck, gives him to his family, and then goes back out to the field to celebrate with his team. And you see this and you're like, that, that medal, the one that you practiced and labored and were sweating and pouring your heart and soul for months and months and months to earn, you just gave it away to this kid who was basically a criminal who deserved to not to be, you know, tackled and taken to prison. And not only was he not taken to prison, he's awarded with a World Rugby Championship gold medal. He did nothing.